Ciao, and welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, a dialogue about how space technology and exploration are transforming our solar system. Noah, we're delighted to have you here today on the Frontier Space Podcast. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. How are things in uh, Edinburgh? Well, um, they're, they're actually uh, fine, yeah. Um, typical Scottish weather today, so a bit of sunshine, a bit of rain. Bonjour and welcome to the Frontier Space Podcast, Alex. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, we've joined a special episode here and uh, really take a deep breath as we wander on this kind of this, this mental journey out in the deep space and to the farthest uh, we've we've gone beyond earth in an episode and out to the the solar gravitational lens it's about 550 astronomical units out um and and that's a a bare minimum not the easiest place to get to i might say it sounds like we're we're converging and 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 we're we're getting closer to uh, to SGL. Well, so I think the idea has been advancing. The progress on getting there is uh, still an open question. You might have heard the recent news about NASA starting to power down the Voyager spacecraft, which has been running for something like four decades. It's on its way out of the solar system at a pretty remarkable speed using a double flyby of Jupiter and Saturn. And it's made it to something like, I think, 150 AU in this 40 years it's been traveling, which is only about a quarter of the way that you would need to go to get to the SGL. Yeah, was, um, from your study, you mentioned the Jupiter flyby increased the Delta V by like six kilometers a second, four kilometers a second. Somehow. It sounds about right. I think it depends a little bit on exactly the timing that you get, but you can definitely use the planets to steal some energy and uh, send your craft going out a little bit faster. Uh, if you're super serious about doing these gravitational flybys, you might even consider a trajectory which first goes to Jupiter, uses Jupiter to slow down, believe it or not. Um, And like, once you've slowed down sufficiently, you can fall towards the sun. And then when you're falling towards the sun, you can do a, a slingshot maneuver around the sun first and steal a lot of energy from the sun to sort of fling yourself out really fast. Um, And that kind of a double slingshot trajectory might even help you um, get to the SGL even faster. Something like, do you think we could push 20 kilometers a second? I think, what is is Voyager speed? Isn't it like 40? I'm not sure. It could be. Yeah. I have to double check that exact number, but I think it's like 40, 40K or something miles per hour. Maybe there's a factor of two that I'm off. But... Yeah, the units are important. I think when people are typically discussing these solar sail missions, they're, they're using units of AU per year which is not, not exactly, you know, easily translatable to human experience. Yeah. Um, could you enlighten us what, what the um, solar gravitational lens is and, and how we can use this as a giant telescope? All right, let's start at the beginning. Yeah, so what's the deal with this whole thing, right? So yeah. astronomy, right? Like you want to use telescopes, you want to look at stuff in outer space. And so... Most of the telescopes we build, you know, you can put them in your backyard or you can put them on the top of a mountain. Um, and some of the very best telescopes you launch on a rocket to low Earth orbit, like Hubble or to L2, like James Webb, right? The, the solar gravitational lens is sort of like a radically different kind of telescope because instead of having your primary mirror or lens be 
a part of the instrument that you deploy. Instead, your primary lens is sort of found in nature. The solar gravitational lens is just that. It's the sun has gravity and gravity bends light. And that bending is just like what a lens does, except it's actually not a very good lens. It's actually a kind of crappy lens. Uh, it's just that it's so big and so massive that the magnification is so large that it has some unusual properties that you can exploit. Um, that an ordinary lens that you might be able to build or an ordinary mirror that you, could, you know, put in a telescope would never really have because they're just far too small. So like the concept to use the sun as a gravitational lens has been around for nearly 50 years. It was originally conceived by a Stanford professor named Vaughn Eshelman. He wanted to use the SGL to communicate in between like interstellar space. So he was thinking you put a radio beacon at this special location at 600 AU away from the direction you want to transmit in basically you have to send a spacecraft to the location diametrically opposed to the communication direction and so using the sun's gravity you can amplify your radio signal so if you wanted to like send wi-fi to alpha centauri or something you might put a beacon at a specific location that's in line with the sun and alpha centauri at this special distance where the focusing starts to work. And then you could have a really small amount of power being transmitted from a really ordinary sized spacecraft magnified by this enormous lens, which is the sun's gravity and use that to amplify your signal. And that was 50 years ago. And you know this idea has definitely been around since you know, a long time, but it was recently reinvigorated now that we know more about extrasolar planets. Um, there is a, a researcher at JPL named Slava Turyshev who came up with this concept to use the gravitational lens of the sun to image planets. Now we can do things with this lens that you could never do with a normal telescope, like see the details on their surface, which is really just quite remarkable. And you know, something that I think people like space enthusiasts and you know, general astronomy lay people would, would love to see, right? I mean, have never seen what an exoplanet actually looks like in that sort of detail. Um, you can only see exoplanets through indirect means or through direct means and very, um, you know, quite like ways. You can see just a little speck at most, but nothing with a lot of detail. And we're wondering, um... I think we we're reading about how there's this scattering of electromagnetic waves and um and like as these these photons as they're bending um do these you know exoplanet um past photons do they mostly follow the electromagnetic fields or the gravity field lines so it's, like, it's an interesting question so are you asking like do they do, does the does the light from the planet get scattered by like the sun's gravity or also by like the sun's plasma, which because it's a big incandescent ball of gas, right? Yeah, in, in, the, in the electromagnetic fields, um, curious. So there's a, both of those things matter and they sort of matter depending on what wavelength of light um, you're looking at. So if you're trying to use a radio beacon, um, it turns out that the sun's corona, which is a highly turbulent magnetic plasma, uh, can really, really distort, you know, your coherent radio signal. Um, but if you want to use like visible light, like optical wavelengths, then the, the scattering from the plasma is not as important. Uh, and it's mostly just controlled by the gravity of the sun. And so it might actually be easier to use this sun as a telescope to look for planets than it would be to, you know, use the sun as like a radio amplifier to send radio signals. 
because the turbulence in the corona will distort the coherent radio waves in your transmitter. That's awesome. Um, is reading about how um, about your impressive study here on, on entitled the, the integral field spectroscopy um, with the with, with the SGL. Um, really cool. It seemed to um, you know I uh, it was it was it was impressive but also hard to follow with with a lot of the mathematics um, and, and uh, could you enlighten us kind of uh, what what uh, what were your takeaways and and um, in this? Sure. So yeah, I'd be happy to explain the contents of the paper I wrote. Um, actually, got quite a lot of attention, I think, from the media, which I was kind of surprised about because. This is part of my PhD thesis, and so you know I'm still a student technically. And uh, this paper, I think, had I had a lot of fun with because it's exploring you know this wild concept, and it's it's really sort of fleshing out the theory behind it all. But getting into a practical implementation starts to become you know a difficult engineering task. And so one of the goals I had with this paper was to sort of illuminate where we have current technology that is sufficient to make this happen and where the technology falls short and what sort of things we need to work on in order to make this sort of thing possible in the future. So those were my, my large overarching goals and the paper was sort of segmented into three major sections about different kinds of questions. The first kinds of questions are about the orbits. So because you need to get to this really special location in space, you have to consider how you would send a spacecraft to that location. And so you need to get really far away. And so to do that, you either need to be extremely patient and wait a really long time, or you need to build this craft that can travel really quickly. And that's one of these basic sort of engineering trade-offs, right? Are you willing to wait a hundred years? Because if you are, then you can use the rockets that they've already used. But if you want to wait 20 years, then you're gonna to have to come up with some new invention. And so that was one of the conclusions in, in the first section, we need to make better propulsion technologies. And I talked a little bit about solar sails and how you might use a solar sail. I don't think I've ever actually heard of somebody flying a solar sail except for maybe just a basic test, but nobody's actually used a solar sail to get anywhere significant. So. That would be a sort of novel thing that would need to be worked on and developed to make this concept more realistic. The next sort of section is all about the, the optics. There's an optical problem associated with building a telescope with this kind of crappy lens that nature has just sort of placed in your backyard. I like to think, you know, we have this giant massive ball of gas, which we can use like a gravitational lens, but it's not a good lens. It's, if you build a lens, you make a very particular shape. It's got a parabolic optical path difference. And this is so when a plane wave, just a beam of light that's coherent comes in, it creates a focus. And with that focus, you can use it to make an image extremely easily like the cell phone camera that you have, like the webcam, they, they have a parabolic lens in them and then they focus the light onto a CCD and those CCDs you know, detect the photons and record the intensity of the light. And that's how we make an image. But the gravitational lens of the sun has a really messed up point spread function, we call it. It's the impulse response of the optical linear operator of the lens. Um, and so you can think of the point spread function as just what a point of light looks like when viewed through the lens. And so if you have myopia like me and you take your glasses off and you look at a little LED, it's gonna be a little smudgy blob and it's gonna have a particular shape. And that particular shape is gonna be associated with the distortions in the lens in your eyeballs. Well, the gravitational lens of the sun has a very special shape for its point spread function. It turns out to be an asteroid, which is a, a four pointed curve. It's a, in a 
family of curves called hypocycloids. They're basically um, circles rolling around inside other circles. And so if you imagine you have an outer circle and you have a smaller inner circle, and then you put a point on that inner circle and you roll the circle around inside the, the outer circle, the curve that that rolling inner circle traces out is the hypocycloid. And so when the ratio of those circles is a factor of four, you get a four-pointed star. It's called the asteroid. And so it's this sort of shape. And so when you look at just a point of light with the solar gravitational lens, it spreads out into this four-pointed star. And that was one of the sort of interesting conclusions that came out of this optical study. It turns out that that has a major implication for how to use the lens of the sun because this distortion can be a great hindrance or a great benefit depending on certain things. And this certain thing that I'm referencing is the, the location of the planet on the sky. So the sun is not perfectly spherically symmetric. It's slightly wider around the equator than the poles. And this is because it's spinning and it's in hydrostatic equilibrium. So the, the gravitational force pulling the matter in balances with the radiative pressure pushing out. But the, the spinning creates a sort of centripetal force which distorts the equator. So we have a little bit of oblateness in the gravitational potential, it's a little wide. And so if you're looking down the pole of the sun, this doesn't matter at all. But if you're looking along the equator of the sun, this effect becomes dominant. And so which planet you want to observe, depending on where it is on the sky, is gonna line up with the equator or the pole of the sun just by chance. Like it's, it's gonna be somewhere and so you're gonna, to create this alignment with the lens, it's gonna have some particular angle that depends on where the planet is on the sky relative to the direction that the axis of the sun points. And so nobody had really ever pointed this out before, but uh, if you wanted to say, look at Alpha Centauri, or you wanted to look at Beta Pictoris, they're gonna have sort of a different value for this relative angle, and that will greatly influence the resulting image that's formed at the SGL. hope that's clear i just sort of talked for like five minutes yeah no i think we followed most um and and congratulations there um it, it, so such a uh sgl's telescope could potentially access both of those um points uh near the pole and equator or orbit to both or is it unfortunately not it's just going to take way too long so any mission like this is really constrained to probably look at exactly one solar system so if you wanted to look at multiple different star systems you probably need multiple different craft that each individually visit the two different locations right because these locations are 600 AU away from the sun. And they're also in line with the sort of direction to the star or planet you want to look at. And so to get from one of those spots to the other at the SGL, you could conceivably have an orbit that connects them, right? Because you get out there and then you get to some circular orbit. But the circular orbits at these distances have orbital timescales of like 10,000 years. So. Unfortunately, I don't think such a thing will be possible if, within the span of any sense of human patience. But if you wanted to send one craft to each system, they could each sort of one craft could go to each system. So you'd have to build multiple spacecraft. Yeah, that's one of the major bummers, I would say, is you only really get one shot. But if you have a really interesting planet, that you really want to observe in great detail, which you might find. There's plans to build better space telescopes in, in near-Earth orbit. Like, I don't know if you've heard of Louvoir, but this was recently recommended by the Decadal Survey. 
the Astro 2020 Decadal Survey. They suggested you build this like six meter optical UV telescope to like hunt for Earth-sized planets. And you wouldn't be able to resolve them, but you could see them and like spectrally examine the colors of their atmosphere. Um, and so they are suggesting that there's something like $15 billion mission that might launch in the 2040s uh, could find something like 20, 30, maybe Earth-sized planets and characterize their atmospheres. And well, if that's successful and you find a few planets that are like really interesting and maybe they look like there's photosynthesis or something, you know, in their atmospheres or something like, you don't know, like maybe you find a really, really interesting planet with Louvoir and you want to follow it up and do extremely detailed observations. So then maybe you would consider sending a craft to the SGL and doing a detailed follow-up of a high priority, important target. Uh, um, another thought that comes to mind is that um, what the depth and in, in, um, however many hundreds of thousands of kilometers of atomic oxygen you have and how that could potentially be a function of exoplanet habitability. Um, interesting. Are you, are you talking about the, the planets themselves? Yeah, like up in the thermosphere and exosphere, you know, like um, there's 500 kilometers of, uh, 500 to 1,000 kilometers of atomic oxygen. Um, and just, you know, how thick that, um, how much oxygen above and, and what that means toward um, photosynthesis and great oxidation. If you find something like oxygen in a planet's atmosphere, it's it's kind of unusual. I think oxygen is really reactive; uh, it wants to attach to other things, basically, because it's extremely electronegative. Um, but free oxygen, yeah, on Earth, it's a biosignature gas because of the cyanobacteria in the ocean. So, if you find large quantities of oxygen combined with other things that it should attached to like methane that's maybe what you might call a smoking gun for life although people will of course still question it so this is exciting stuff um and in in your study here you you also um you outlined about how to maintain the alignment with the target planet the, and the optical effects and the sources of noise. And, um, and then I was reading about a, this special algorithm that, that, um, that you designed with team to, to, to undistort the light. Okay. Um, I'd love to hear more if, uh, on, on, on how to, on, on that. Your accomplishments there. Yes. Okay, so you want to hear about the alignment problem or the distortion of the light? Um, maybe distortion of the light. It sounds very interesting. <laughs> okay, so it turns out this special algorithm is really extremely boring. It's just, <laughs> there's really nothing too crazy about it. It turns out that this algorithm, which is just a you know, regularized inverse called a pseudo inverse. It's a, it's a linear inverse of a, let's just say a degenerate map. It's a degenerate map. It's a, there's a linear transformation of the image which creates the Einstein ring. And this, this, I wish I could share my screen with you on my laptop because I'd have some pictures that would help explain this, but let me see if I can, my laptop during the Zoom call because this, this mapping is kind of difficult to explain just with words. But basically, if you think there's an image of the planet and the image gets compressed into a ring, this is the Einstein ring. Um, and it's going to make me leave on my, on my phone, so I'm worried that I won't be able to talk to you when my computer joins. So um, and maybe I'll just... Uh, to the extremely basic. Okay, I think we're following here. And so this, 
this exoplanet image is in this uh, kind of toroidal ring called the Einstein ring. Okay, here's me uh. on my computer <laughs> screen. I don't know if you can actually see this diagram. Yes, yes. In this diagram, there's a circle in the middle and there's a blue slice and there's a, a yellow slice. I like to think of these pairs of pizza slices of the planet that, that get mapped into these segments, basically around the edge of the ring. Um, and so th this, this picture, I think, is extremely helpful for me to imagine what happens to the light of the planet when you're looking at the Einstein ring. So you just think about these little pizza slices that you have, and then they, those points in those pizza slices get compressed into two points on the opposite side of the ring. And so the trick is that if you examine the the structure of the brightness of the ring as you look around, you can sort of make out the details on the planet's surface, but a lot of the information is lost because of this compression. And so the trick to recover it is to try and invert this compression. And so to do this, you need to have a lot of signal to noise, um, basically because it's a lossy channel. So you lose details. But the advantage of the solar gravitational lens is that you gain a large number of photons. And so we talk about the magnification of the lens as basically the ratio of the area of the image on the sky to the area of the image of the object. And so the planet is extremely small. It's super far away. But the ring has an apparent size on the sky that's very large. It's just stretched in very thin and it's around the edge of the sun. Um, and so you get a much larger image of the planet when you look at the ring. So the total number of photons you collect is like nine orders of magnitude larger than if you had just pointed your telescope at the planet. And so this factor of a billion in magnification sort of offsets the compression of the image. And so you can sort of do some incredible things um, but this mapping is degenerate. And so you need a trick to break this degeneracy. And so the existing concepts, the one that Slava Turyashev suggested, and this is sort of still the baseline concept is that to break this degeneracy, you send your spacecraft around in slightly offset ways. So the, you can think like the, the sun is like a projector lens. And it forms an image like a, like if you hung up a bed sheet, there would be an image of the planet. And so that image, that projection has a size and that projection is about a kilometer in diameter. So it's quite large. You can never really build a kilometer sized CCD to put there. And so you have like a meter scale telescope and you have that meter scale telescope sort of scan across the image and sort of at each spot, it sort of collects a little bit of light like a single pixel would and you sort of step through all the pixels. And so that's one strategy you can use to, to break this degeneracy. But we, we demonstrated in this paper that if you do that and you combine it with the structure of the ring, which you can use to gain additional knowledge, that you can do a better job of reconstructing these images. And in one extreme edge case where you're looking directly along the equator of the sun and your planet is far enough away, you can skip this whole scanning bit. Um, it turns out that when the distortions of the lens are at their biggest, this is when the quadrupole moment of the gravitational potential is, is causing the most distortions of the, the point spread function, that your blur uh, this asteroid-shaped blur of a point becomes as large as the image is. So you have a kilometer scale image and you have roughly a kilometer scale blur of that image. And so the light is all mixed up. But because the blur is as big as the image is, you can park the telescope at one spot and collect light from every location on the planet. And with the knowledge of how the light gets bent into this ring and that you can collect all the light from every location in the planet at one spot, 
you can just look at the structure in the ring and then invert the degenerate mapping to get a complete image of the planet. And this is extremely difficult and requires a very large amount of signal to noise, especially if you want a high resolution image, which is probably not feasible. But if you wanted to do a low resolution image, like a little postage stamp, and like I'm thinking like maybe 10 by 10 pixels, which is like a pretty nice postage stamp, I'd say, you know, extremely tiny image of a planet's surface, but you could conceivably do that um, without the scanning trick. But in the practicality, I think the scanning trick is extremely practical solution, especially if you don't have this perfect alignment and if the planet isn't far enough away, it doesn't always work. And so that was one of the little interesting things I think that we sort of discovered by playing around with this model. Yeah, I don't know if that's a clear explanation or if there's something else I'm missing and could help you explain further. But. Yeah, I, I think we have a much clearer picture um, of, of, of this concept now, yes. Um, and so forget, but, but you mentioned this, um, the spacecraft could, could be in a scanning window for um, a certain amount of time and then um, collect like 5K by 5K or, or 10K by 10K image resolution of the planet? I don't think that would really be feasible. Those are, that's far too high resolution. Um, yeah, I think the concept that um, Dr. Turyashev mentions aiming at 1K by 1K. So he wants to go for a megapixel, which is a, you know, still quite large number of pixels, a million pixels. Um, the, the thing that's 5K by 5K, um, I think is the original resolution of the data set we used to, to test these models. So I used some pretty high resolution images of, of Earth, which were taken with a geostationary weather satellite. And uh, these data sets are some of my favorite because they're just absolutely spectacular. You know, you can watch the weather of the Earth in like 5K by 5K resolution. You can see all the details in the clouds. Um, yeah, the, the meteorological data sets are really quite pretty, but we, we used those uh, sort of as a very, you know, aesthetic demonstration of the concept because we have these super high resolution, you know, images of Earth and then we can, you know, model the gravitational lens of the sun on those on those images and, and see how the the ring is formed and then we can test the inversion and see that it actually is possible to, to do this inversion when you when you have high enough signal to noise it feels like anything is really possible so yeah, the, the major constraints are could you develop an instrument that would not only reasonably get to the, to the focal distance in time, but acquire the signal to noise you need to do the reconstruction um, rapidly enough because you know, the planet isn't still life. You know, the planet is changing, it's spinning, or wet, the clouds are moving, you know, there's things happening on the planet. It's going around its star. And so it's going from a crescent to quarter to gibbous, you know, like the moon does. And so the, the illumination that you're looking at is time variable. And so you really need to be able to make enough observations rapidly enough that you can do this reconstruction and get an image and not like a smeared out mess of, you know, a planet that has spun around and so you can't see anything. It's like got a motion blur. That's the challenge. Nice. Um, it sounds like there are so many potential exciting applications in addition to imaging exoplanets too. I was reading about how we can kind of like image and quantify um, all sorts of astronomical events, you know, black holes, quasars. Um, it could really significantly help us understand this, this multiverse we're in here. <laughs> yes. yeah, you could conceivably come up with a similar concept to look at anything, right? It's just a lens, like you could build a telescope to look at anything you want. Now, would it be worth it is the question. It's like, is it going to be cheaper or better? 
to build such a like telescope to look at something there's a, a different question for like the science that you want to do for example so i think that the major advantages that the sgl has are this extremely high angular resolution so that you would never be able to you know see these sort of details on the planet because the planets are so tiny and so far away build an ordinary telescope that would let you see those level of details the telescope would have to be basically the size of the sun that's just simply not feasible you can't build something that large it's like a it's like a dyson sphere it's just like a mega structure it's enormous right there's no humanly feasible way to build something that large at least as that i can imagine but you know you can build a really ordinary sized telescope and send it to this really special location and use the sun as the lens and see these things in extremely high resolution it's pretty interesting to, to think it, it might be possible but that to suggest that it would revolutionize every field would well that would take a huge amount of investment i think it it's not clear to me that if you want to observe say galaxies that it's going to be better because the, the galaxies are kind of large aren't they they're, they're definitely much larger than the planets in terms of their angular size on the sky and so you know maybe the galaxy people don't really benefit a lot maybe for really distant objects i don't know i would have to think about that more carefully yeah it sounds like everything converges toward these smaller scale demos and um you, you mentioned the one meter scale telescope and um but you, i don't know you know you start thinking about well what, what could we collect with a five meter or 10 meter telescope um, yeah. yeah if you want to go more and more ambitiously you know you can always increase the functionality it's just at a certain point it becomes a, a question of feasibility rather than you know just the theory Yeah, so the the the, the one um, I was reading about from a NASA NIAC study, they they mentioned um, there's a lot of interference at the SGL beyond around uh, 547.6 AU, um, but but that would be a good place for such a telescope um, after achieving a high velocity of 150 kilometers a second, something like that. Yeah, if you want to get there. If you want to get there in any sort of reasonable amount of time, then yeah, you're going to need to go pretty quick. I'm trying to look. So the the, the nominal mission design I, I'm, I had written down in the paper had a, a velocity at periastron, which is basically a departure velocity of 47 kilometers per second, um, which is, I think, equivalent to the New Horizons spacecraft, the one that went to visit Pluto, you've probably heard. Um, the New Horizons got to Pluto, which was at like 30 AU in about a decade. So three AU per year-ish. And it was going, you know, 57 kilometers per second relative to the sun. That, if you just used that rocket again, basically, you would have to wait like a hundred years to get to the SGL, which is quite a long time. Uh, I, I don't think people would want to wait that long. Um, personally, I don't think I would mind being that patient because well, I would no longer be here. So it's not my issue to worry about. But I think, for example, if you wanted Congress to fund something like this, you might want to suggest that it would return in a matter of decades, not in a matter of centuries. And so and you need to go a little bit faster than, than what New Horizons did in order to do that. But I think that's certainly possible. New Horizons was, it didn't even use the Saturn flyby like Voyager did, it just did a Jupiter flyby. So if you had a special flyby trajectory or if you had solar sails, I think you could bring the time down to a couple decades. Yeah, I would imagine um, however many years from now we're, you know, we're, we're beam launching, you know, however hundreds of, of, of solar sails or laser sails out, out to the SGL. Um, be very exciting. 
Yeah, there's people that want to use these laser-powered sails too, right? You have some kind of, it's like a sail craft, but plus a ground-based station for, for sending up laser power. They want to they want to send little tiny spacecraft to Alpha Centauri at a quarter of the speed of light using these machines. But I don't know, they still feel very fanciful and futuristic to me. So I don't, I don't know what the progress on those is. Yeah, sounds like they're making good progress, but I'm not, not quite sure either. Um, but, it, but, but I think it would make sense to um, envision the design of such a um, SGL telescope with these kind of solar sails, you know, so you kind of like combine the two designs um, and, and with these kind of small payloads that could be delivered piece by piece, um, mission by mission. Here's how that would it's, come together. It's certainly interesting to think about a modular design to this, right? So if you could design an extremely small satellite that would be capable of going very fast, could you send a large number of them to sort of independently observe like the different pixels? And this is, I think this is part of the design that Dr. Turishev looked at. If you wanted to have these little CubeSats, in an array, a big array of little CubeSats. Um, I think there's a challenge with that because you have to be able to separate the light from the planet and the light from the sun. So this is something we sort of really haven't talked about yet, but you're looking at the sun. The sun is really bright. You need to be able to know if the light you're looking at is the ring of the planet, which is being magnified, is Really, it's quite bright compared to the planet, but is it bright compared to the sun? The sun is way closer than the planet is and way bigger, and the sun is also way brighter than the planet is. So even though the light from the planet is magnified a billion times, you still have to compete with the sun. The sun is really bright. And so you need to be able to separate those, and you need to be able to do that reliably. And so if you try and send an array of little CubeSats they're gonna have a much more difficult time separating the light from the sun and the planet. Whereas if you send like a Hubble-sized spacecraft, which is you know, quite big, actually, it's a meter diameter, you know, bigger than me, for sure, uh, it'll be better at reliably separating the signals because you need to be able to resolve the gap in between the edge of the ring and the edge of the solar disk. And then you need to deploy what we call a coronagraph, which is an instrument that we was developed to observe the solar corona, to block the light from the sun. The photosphere has a disk, you block the light from the, the sun's disk, and then you can observe the faint light from the corona, like how you would see in a solar eclipse. And it turns out that the corona is actually about the same brightness as the planet. And this is actually kind of remarkable because this is just by chance. It really could be, couldn't be more fortuitous, but the corona and the planet are very similar in brightness. And so if you can sufficiently block the light from the disk, you only have to sort of lose the signal to noise from the light from the corona. And then you could conceivably manage that one, I think if you have a spectroscopic strategy where you separate the light out into its different colors, you could reasonably find a way to subtract the contamination from the corona and pull out the light in the planet's ring. Now, I think this is probably the, the sort of most ideal type of instrument, right? Because once you can separate the light from the, the sun's disk, the corona, the planet's ring, if you can reliably extract those different components, then you have a much better shot of you know, pulling off these reconstructions. Oh, it's very interesting to think about in, in here. Um, we, you know, we start um, thinking about um, the the solar gravitational lens and how this applies to other um, 
stars and, and how this lens um, becomes a key kind of area of interest, but then also how um, it, it might potentially, um, there might be a similar, you know, earth gravitational lens. Okay, that's, yeah, I mean, there are other bodies, right? The different masses and different locations. What, why can't we use a Jupiter as a lens or something, you know, like, why not? Uh, and so there's a very good reason you want to use the sun and it's because it's the biggest. Uh, the, there are these gravitational lenses for all the other masses. There's a gravitational lens for the speck of dust on my, on my eyeglasses right now. But those lenses have focal lengths that are extremely long. So the, the solar gravitational lens is sort of like focal length is like 600 AU, which is just absurdly far away, right? But the, the focal length for the Earth is for the Jupiter's gravitational lens is, is even further. So it's really something where you want to go big. Uh, and I would even go so far as to suggest that you want to go extremely big. So if you had a black hole, say, like suppose that planet nine is a black hole, right? In the outer solar system. That would be a way better gravitational lens than the sun would be. Just, it would just be way better to have a, a black hole as your primary lens because, well, there are a couple of reasons. So the, the black hole is massive, obviously like the sun, but it's also smaller in angular scale. So it's way denser. Because it's denser, you can get closer to it and still have this uh, focal length work. So yeah, you have to go really far away from the sun because you need to have the Einstein ring that forms be larger than the disk of the sun. The sun has a finite size disk, and so the Einstein ring needs to be bigger than that. Had a black hole, the disk of the black hole is going to be extremely tiny. And so that you can get much closer to it. And so it'll be easier to use it as a lens. Yeah, I was, I was reading about a black hole discovered not too far away. So um, I'm curious on uh, the potential, like, how much better would a black hole gravitational lens be? Um, I think it'd be better without a doubt. How much better, I think, depends on you know what the black hole is, because it could be way worse. For example, if you have an extremely active black hole, it's currently accreting material. You know, there's a big cloud of gas that's falling in and spiraling in. Well, that, that would really get in your way, right? And you'd want it to be quiescent, but not active. Um, but I think it would, you know, if you had like an ideal black hole, like one that's not accreting, I think it would be way better. But I think most black holes are, you know, they've got fairly active regions around them that would get in the way. Like, I don't know if you've seen the, the EHT photographs of M87 or the recent results of Sagittarius A star. But there's definitely stuff happening around the black hole. There's, you know, there's accretion disks and there's plasma and so that would all get in the way of, of using it as a lens. But um, if that wasn't in the way, then, then I think they would be way better lenses. See, Nick. We'll keep this in mind, yes. Um, and I think um, over here. Um, but. Um, You know, if, if, if we were to flash forward, you know, hundreds of years to, uh, to, to the year 2300 or, or, or something, um, you know, if these gigawatt lasers are blasting all sorts of spacecraft um, and, you know, we've detected this advanced species, how, how could um, your work and the SGL, how could this enable interstellar communication? That's really going way beyond anything I've thought about. I thought I was pushing it with 100 years. You want to go more than 100. Yeah, time 
I don't know, whatever time scale, whether it's our grandfather, grandchildren, or our kids. I don't know. But sooner the better, ideally, yes. So. Yeah, so I think for me, I was thinking like two decades roughly until Louvoir, right? And then so once, once you've got Louvoir, which would be like two decades, that's going to take another decade to return all of its answers. So like 2050-ish, we might have, say, 20 Earth-like planets that we know about in the immediate neighborhood. I'd say a couple of decades from now, the solar sails will probably be developed enough to be sensible. And so you might consider a mission to the SGL on the order of 20 years to get there. And so by 2070, you could be visiting the SGL. Um, now, the thing is about the SPLs, it just gets better and better as time goes on because the 600 AU number is really the bare minimum. Uh, if you want to do the best case scenario at the SGL, you really want 2300 AU. Um, and this is because as you go further and further away, the disk of the sun has it shrinks in apparent size. It starts to get smaller as you get further away. But the Einstein ring gets smaller too. But it gets smaller slower, which is a little unusual because of the gravitational lens. And it gets smaller slower to the point where there's a certain distance where the angular size between the edge of the solar disk and the inside of the ring is at its largest. And this is really the optimal spot to be in if you want to image with the SGL. It's like 2300 AU. So if you get to the beginning of the focal plane at 600 AU in two decades, it's going to take you, what, uh, help me, six more decades to get to the optimal location. And so this is starting to push something like with 2130, which is 110 years from now at the earliest, right? I mean, this is if everything goes perfectly. And and those distances, you know, you can, you really start to open up your even more capability for lens. And so, you know, designing a mission to last eight decades in space is really something that goes beyond anything that's been demonstrated in the current, but it's not out of the question of reality. It just becomes an immense engineering task um, that may be possible. Uh, no guarantees, obviously. I don't think it's out of the question within, you know, what did you say, three centuries? Yeah, sure. That gives us plenty of time if you know, the world doesn't fall apart to come up with some more engineering solutions to extremely difficult problems. But yeah, you could, you could conceivably start to do some interstellar communication and observation, certainly just becomes a question of determination at that point. Like, do you have enough people uh, working to solve these kinds of problems? Awesome. Really appreciate your time, Alex. Yes. Um, uh, we look forward to supporting your mission over there. Yeah, of course. I hope the explanations were accessible enough. Right. Okay. Sounds great. Yes. Okay, well, have a good one. I'll talk to you later. Uh, peace.